listening to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with host Shereen Rice on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening. This is Shereen Rice with Making a Difference About Domestic Violence. My goal for this show is to educate and help in the healing journey for those that are suffering from domestic violence and abuse. If you are listening tonight and would like to get in touch with me, you can use my email, which is Shereen, S-H-A-R-E-E-N-E-C-W-R at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to remind everyone that our show is on Thursday nights, the second and fourth Thursday nights of each month at 8 p.m. Central Time, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. My show can also be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you subscribe to those services, that is. And now if you want to have direct links to those services, you can go to our, you can go to CWRTalkNetwork.com and click on the logo for those services. And if at any time you experience a trigger by this topic, because we are going to be talking about trauma, please call the national hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7223. Okay, so tonight I have Jason Grigla on. I'm going to have Jason Grigla on just a minute. And he is a clinical mental health counselor of 18 years. He has a master's degree in professional counseling for marriage, family and addiction recovery therapy, and he's worked at the um, LDS Family Services for 11 years as the director of the Phoenix, Arizona office. Um, Afterwards, he opened his private practice in Glendale, Arizona for three years until he moved to Tokerville, Utah to work at a teen inpatient therapeutic program. He has been married to his wife, Debbie, for 23 years, and they have adopted three boys and have two little girls. And they are ages 5, 10, 15, 25, and 25. So I'm going to say those are probably twins. So we are going to go to a public service announcement, and then we'll be back to talk to Jason. My savings are gone. Okay, where were they last? Here, right before I spent them on that vacation to Aruba. Weird. Not weird. Not saving now means no money later. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Hi, Jason. Hey, Shereen. Thanks for having (laughs) me on. Oh, thank you for being on. I so appreciate it. Okay, so one thing I wanted to say to everyone is that it's never easy to be a victim of domestic violence, and in every case, someone has to be honest and help them hear what is right, which is sometimes, for domestic violence victims, difficult to hear. So Jason Grigla, a mental health counselor, will be discussing the difficult things that um, that DVA victims at times need to hear for their healing. Okay, and so we're going to start talking first about the ugly sides of recovering from trauma. So share with us a little bit about that. Well, let me let me back up a little bit and explain that for about 12 years, I ran a 12-week therapeutic workshop for uh, women who were survivors of life's experiences, and much of that was abuse, trauma, or just neglect and deprivation, all which are damaging. And it was a women's specific group, and so myself and a co therapist would run the group together and whether I liked it or not 
because I was a male therapist in a woman's group, I often became the target of, I think, what we call transference. Because uh-huh. here's a male trying to explain to women, here's what works, here's what doesn't work, here's, here's what I'm seeing, and looking at yourself in the mirror and the things you can control and should control if you want to heal came really hard from a guy. And so I just want to say to your listeners, I I have nothing but compassion, empathy, and I want to be hopeful. And sometimes in those groups especially, it was important for them to work through their issues with a male therapist because a lot of them do have issues with men in general um, because the, the numbers are very clear that the far majority of abusers or active abusers um, are men uh, because of our testosterone-based nature, I would think. Um, right. But for me, one of the hard things is, and if, and if any of your listeners are having a hard time hearing things from me, take a step back, take a dip, big deep breath, and just know that I want them to find peace. I want them to heal. Um, I want them to be okay. And sometimes that requires getting in and doing the dirty work for the things they can control, which which is usually inside and not necessarily about how to have boundaries with other people, which is also very important. So I just wanted to share that up front, um, that I mean no ill will, um, and it doesn't change what needs to happen for them to find peace. So one of the hard parts or the ugly parts of healing or recovery from any type of abuse, and I I think there's three categories that are really important to identify. One is your classic abuse where someone's trying to hurt you um, emotionally, verbally, sexually, physically, whatever. And the next one would be trauma. And trauma isn't where someone's really trying to hurt you, um, but it's traumatic anyway. Um, For example, parents fighting in front of children, it's very traumatizing to them. And you could call it abuse, but it, it fits more in the category of traumatic and it definitely leaves scars and so trauma and then things like illnesses and deaths accidents um, bankruptcies and having to move transiency those are all very traumatic and fall under the category of maybe abuse but not not intentionally and then the last one is anything that we are deprived of that we need when we're neglected from the things that we need that's a really hard, ambiguous area that um, is a little bit of the topic I want to talk about today um, because even if no no parent or spouse or partner is a perfect parent, spouse, or partner, um, the more we can do to meet our partner's needs for safety, security, consistency, um, love, respect, um, all of those things are critical, but when we don't get the things that we need then we are harmed as well in our development, um, our ability to progress and move forward is harmed. And that's where um, oftentimes we actually have the worst consequences long-term. For example, a child in a home who has, um, let's say, a father, um, for this example, who is there and teaches them and mentors them and reads them books, takes them fishing, um, talks to them when they're hurting – but also has a really bad temper and can blow up and yell at them um, is often not nearly as difficult for a child to overcome than a child, for example, who has a father that completely neglects and doesn't interact with them. And they, they learn the message that they're not even important enough to yell at, let alone to feel loved. 
And so when we talk about neglect and deprivation, um, that's a critical piece. Um, attachment happens even in difficult relationships because at least there's an interaction going on. Um, yeah, can I add something the... to yeah, that real ahead, quick? Um, domestic violence victims feels that all the time. In fact, I someone said something on one of the sites that I'm on, you know, what is something you can't live without or yeah, what can you not live without? And I said, I have to feel like I matter. Yes. And in a twisted way, someone who's being yelled at, if that's all they got, that would be very, very damaging, obviously. But if the the parent or the spouse can come back and ensure that they do feel like they matter, um, then then they can do better than a parent who completely sends the message that they don't matter at all because that creates reaction attachment disorders. And those are some of the hardest things to overcome from for children, for example. So I want to start with one of the ugly parts of healing, and that's ownership. And there's this statement that pushes a lot of buttons, and I rarely bring it up with my clients until they are well in the safety, security, healing place where they have enough wherewithal and substance and they've regained or recovered enough of themselves to talk about it without it becoming a snowball effect, cascade effect back into depression, despair, self-loathing, shame, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. So once they're in a certain level, um, obviously they have to be safe first and get away from the, the situations that are harming them. But once they do a little work and they find their feet, we have to talk about the principle of how every victim in some way becomes a victimizer, which sounds horrible and it feels horrible. But I've never met a, a victimizer or a perpetrator, an abuser, who also wasn't a victim first. And maybe that's an overstatement, but it's, it's a really high percentage. And so when we look at the patterns of problems that come from traumas, abuses, and deprivations, I need my clients to really love who they are and to really feel good about who they are. And if they have in any way passed on some of the mud um, and the dirt and the grime onto the people that they love around them, oftentimes children or their next um, lover, romance partner, um, or their extended family, the, the, the people that take them in oftentimes because they're in crises um, and they have so much poison and maybe they explode on them, um, or maybe because they're in so much hurt and pain that they don't have the ability to love or give love in the ways that they could if they hadn't been hurt in the first place. So we have to do an, a real honest assessment um, as humans, and everybody obviously is a victim of life. Um, everyone has their hardships. Um, I, I would be really hard-pressed to say that one person's hardship is worse than another because there's so many ways that people experience them, and, and um, two people experience the same exact situation in totally different ways. But I, but I would say that we are all hurt, scarred, beat up, bruised, cut, and so every one of us has a responsibility to get ourselves in a place where we are healthy enough to take a really good look in the mirror and say, okay, how have my scars and my hurts and my fears and anxieties, how have my belief systems that have been injected and infused into me from the negative situations that, um, that I was in, whether I chose them or not, doesn't matter. How have I passed those on in a way that has harmed others, either proactively 
by yelling at my own kids because I was yelled at or um, reactively where I withhold love because I'm just not there. I'm not whole yet. And even if a parent gets well and healthy and comes back to be a good parent or a good partner, um, there was still a period of time where they weren't able to be in the relationship the way they should have been or could have been is even a better word, or wanted to be. Um, I don't like words like you should have, you needed to, you ought to, because that that's really shaming. Um, the reality is we, we, for the most part as humans, really want to be good to others. But if we're broken and hurt and scarred, it's just harder. So we do an honest assessment, and that requires taking a, a long look. And I also like the term lean into the pain, which is a, an addiction recovery term. When you lean into the, the pain of, I was broken by the things that I experienced. And even if I didn't have anything to do with it, it it's still hard. Um, and now because of that, it has been passed on somehow. Um, one case where there was sexual abuse, for example, and the pattern of abuse is so, is so hard to stop. In one case, there was seven generations of sexual abuse, but not directly father to daughter or anything. It was more like, grandpa to grandson to nephew to daughter to and and it went down seven generations and and it just is like a cancer and i don't think any of those people were born wanting to be abusers or perpetrators um it's so hard to stop the pattern um, i oh i met a man recently bad. whose temper was was really horrible and he hated himself for it and he also didn't have the wherewithal to stop it, or at least not yet. And it finally got so bad that he was losing so much in his life that it was worth it for him to quit denying that he had a problem and, and start facing it. And he actually came for counseling because he wanted to change. Um, and that makes a big difference, obviously, ownership. Um, yeah. But even knowing you have a problem, the the deeply ingrained neural pathways for survival mechanisms, for acting out behaviors, for addictive type impulses, those are so deeply ingrained in the brain that it takes two to three years to change the brain. And I think my, uh, going back to what my point was, is even when they want to change, it's really hard um, to do so. But he was not nearly as abusive as his own father. Mm. And so when we take him at his own, take him at his own place, if we want to do honest assessment, Certainly, his temper was a problem and needs to be dis, you know, addressed. On the other hand, I am so proud of him for not making it, not not becoming twice as bad as his father. He could have gone either direction, and instead, he he really didn't want to be his father, and he actually hated himself for anything that just reminded him of his father. Um, another mother came in uh, for counseling, and she had a mom that was cold and judgmental. And she withheld love to manipulate control and discipline. And when we withhold love, it definitely damages our children and our spouses and our loved ones. And she could not open her heart and love her daughter, and she was suicidal over the fact that she had become her mother. Um, and that, that's an exa- a good example, kind of a, an extreme one that a victim becomes the victimizer in some ways. I don't know if you've ever heard the statement, but my mom has a sign in her bathroom that says, 
Mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my mother after all. <laughs> that is so to avoid. You know, I the whole classic, I'll never be like my mom or I'll never be like well, my dad if you're Yeah, let me ask you this. Would it be um what if you're more like your dad than your mom? Well, I don't know if it matters which one. I mean, it, it wouldn't either. be just the mother, right? Because, like, I think I'm more like my dad than my mom, and I think my brother's more oh, like okay. my mom than my dad. Correct. Yeah, and that was my mom's sign, and she owned it, so that was personally to her. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I think personality-wise, it can go either direction for sure. Um, but when, if we take on some of the more traditional roles as I'm more like my I'm more like my dad in your case, but if you end up being a mother and you need to do more mothering, maybe you end up doing things the way your mom did. I don't know. I don't know that that yeah. matters as much. Um, I think all of our parents want us to be better than they were. Yeah. And that's kind of the best we can expect from people. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we do alter things like that one guy you said wasn't as bad as his father. Let me share with you an interview I did several months ago, which I just absolutely loved. It was about it was about a girl whose mother had multiple personalities. And um, so her mother was basically born and created because the father wanted to have sex and the mother couldn't have sex or something. So it's supposedly the mother, the, uh, her, the multiple personality lady, her mother supposedly didn't know anything about it. But anyway, her father would always say, um, your purpose is to help your mother or yeah. And so this girl develops right. multiple personalities. She had been raped or abused to physically, mm-hmm. sexually, um, since the age of three. And so that was the youngest multiple personality she had was at the age of three. And um, so anyway, you know, growing up, no one really knew too much about multiple personalities till the mid-70s, right, when Sybil came out. And so when yep. she was evaluated in the late 70s, early 80s, um, she just thought her mom was just kind of weird. And when that came out, it became more clear oh that's a possibility anyway so it kind of rang for her but anyway so when she was on her mission she said to her mission president um i have to call home and he said why and she said because my family i just can't really explain it i haven't heard from them and it's very important that i hear from them and he said why and then she explained it to him and he said well let me ask you this he goes has your mother ever perpetrated sexually on you And she said, no. He said, well, then when she built these other personalities, she was building a bridge to avoid that behavior towards you, which I thought was very, very um, insightful. What are your thoughts on that? I I think defense mechanisms are amazingly intricate and very sophisticated. And we can we can describe it as I have this defense mechanism, but then if we honor it as a defense mechanism, that it serves a purpose. And multiple personalities absolutely served a purpose, and nobody starts off saying, I can't wait to grow up and be a multiple personality disorder or uh, the, heal, the recovered or healed victim of abuse, but it happens to us because life happens, right? Right. Um, defense mechanisms are hard, and they are our – our bridges and our saving graces. There are our islands of sanctuary 
Um, we often build fences around us to protect us only to find that we've put ourselves in our own prisons and we can't get out. And a part of recovery and healing and a part of that assessment process of, okay, where am I? Who am I? What have I become? What do I believe? What do I need? I used to be a child that could not control what happened to me, but as I became an adult, I'm only responsible um, for the things that I, I can control and I can control way more than I did as a child. But once we realize that, we can start choosing to protect ourselves. Um, and I, as a marriage counselor, I want a spouse to do everything in their power to work out a marital relationship if it's feasible and likely to become healthy. And that, that's a really hard decision. But while you're trying to figure that out, there's still a lot of scarring and biting and abusing negativity going on. So everyone comes out, but it would be worth it if they could work through it. But a lot of times marital relationships fall apart or parenting relationships fall apart because the defense mechanisms that saved us in our youth are no longer beneficial and they've become chains that drag us down instead of chains that tie us back to security or safety um, and letting go of those defense mechanisms requires a lot of bravery, faith, um, hope, work, processing, confidence, self-esteem, and, and usually a guide or a mentor, whether it's a therapist, a good friend, a, a life coach, a, even a really good book or God, a, those things can help guide us through it because it's really not wise to go through it on your own. We all need someone to tell our story to and to share share the burden even if you know even if they don't understand exactly what you're going through we all we all know what empathy and compassion should be and we all know what support should be so i like that looking at my defense mechanism was to not love others because if i did they would hurt me and so as a mom if i withhold love from my child and i can't give my whole heart that's that affects the child and yeah. that's where the victim can become the victimizer and of no fault of the parent's own because, once again, there's no such thing as perfect parents. We all screw up our kids mm-hmm. to some degree. And even <laughs> if we were perfect parents... I like how you own that. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, it's the only thing that makes me sleep better at night. But the thing that even if I was a perfect parent is I would not be able to protect them from the world around them, and that also makes me an imperfect parent because it's my job to... Yeah you know protect them in their nest until they're old enough and then if they need a little push you push them out of the nest and i kind of i've kind of switched though just a side note from the baby bird pushing them out of the nest thing to more of a in this day and age i think they should stay butterfly or the caterpillars in the cocoon as long as they possibly can because man baby birds being pushed out of their nest they're flopping on the ground and getting eaten by snakes and a lot of them need more protection longer uh, our our children just aren't as resilient as they used to. There's too much at stake, too much pressure, whatever. But so this whole negative thing about it's not my fault that I'm scarred comes with a a side a side statement of but I am the only solution. I didn't create all of my problems and all of my weaknesses but I am the only one that's going to fix them and overcome them so that I don't pass them on to those that I love around me. 
And that's just a hard statement. And when a therapist or a friend or a counselor can look at someone who's been through hell and say, now it's time to help your children heal because you were gone for six weeks in rehab or you were in the hospital for two weeks and they had to stay with with friends. Um, Whatever it is, it's about ownership, not um, shaming. It's not about fault. It's just about honest assessment and saying, yep, I, even if I wanted to be a better mom or even if I wanted to be but I couldn't or what if I didn't even want to be and I was an angry, selfish person, the, the goal is still the same. If my child struggled, I want to be the person to help them heal and um, get their needs met. So I don't know, that's, that's a really hard thing, but if someone can get to that place and take that next step where they're not just protecting themselves from being abused – which is important, but the next step to to stop the cycle by becoming everything that we can become, that's when the real transformation happens, and that's when you'll find peace. We're not at peace just because we're no longer being abused. We might be safe and we might be comfortable, but peace comes from usually being out of our comfort zone and overcoming and, and self What's the word? Self-actualization, if you're going to go into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that means becoming who we want to become in spite of what we've been through. And that's kind of a longer journey. But it's a great goal. And when they arrive there, when I arrive there, it is so much sweeter than just not being abused or hurt any longer. Yeah, that's... uh... That's really good. So stopping the cycle, um, you talked a little bit about that. What do you suggest that people do to stop the cycle besides getting out of their um, comfort zone and self-actualization from Maslow? So let me actually go back to the stopping the cycle as far as getting out of the bad situation. I think that's a really gray area. Like I mentioned, there's no perfect marriage situation and every marriage is going to have conflicts conflicts are inevitable and then they almost always turn into some form of contention and the couple that learns how to resolve their their conflicts without the contention they end up making it more often than those who cannot communicate or resolve their conflicts so how do you know when to call it because they they keep going back around um i've had I've had many opportunities to counsel with couples who um, oftentimes the wife um, being more emotionally in tune or less able to compartmentalize as men can, and I'm definitely overgeneralizing, so forgive me for that. Um, But often the the women who come from a really hard home situation um, can't hide their scars and so they're in a marriage, and, and a lot of times their abuse from their past comes in to create problems and fears where the wife will transfer onto the husband that, you know, men are what whatever it is, men are pigs, or men are just going to hurt me, or um, I married a man because I knew all I was good for was being his sexual pincushion, and it's, that was my goal, or that was my purpose. And so we carry those scars into the next relationships. And oftentimes in marriage counseling, I'll have to have one or both of the partners separate and do their own individual counseling. So to just say get into a safe place is really tricky. Yeah. Um, 
it's very gray and murky. And I'll give you a really extreme example. There was a father who had no desire to hurt anyone ever, um, had never been in a fight, never been abusive, but he um, was a foster parent for a couple of children who had been beaten. And they were difficult, difficult kids, so hard, way harder than the foster father thought. And it, at one point, the the kids had damaged the house in a really extreme way, creating a lot of problems for this father who was just exhausted, trying to do the best he could to love and give them consistency and, and um, discipline and whatever. And he lost his temper and said, why would you do that? And he started to yell, and he raised his voice, and, you know, thank God for, for men like this willing to take these kids on, but he did get angry. Um, and I think I would have too in the same situation. But as soon as his voice raised, both of those children put their hands up over their heads and their faces and curled up waiting to be hit and waiting to be struck. And so... They expected it, and for about a split half second, this father said, I was going to hit them because they expected me to hit them. They invited me to hit them. I didn't want to hit them. It's not in my nature, but they knew it, and they created an opening, and I almost did it. And yeah. I've never done anything like that in my life, and what a horrible situation to have to be put in that because these children expected to be abused they created a situation where their their foster parent who by every account was a good person who wanted to be a good you know temporary father for these kids and so it's so gray and murky about ownership and fault and that's one of the things about the patterns that's so difficult um, because we have to be really really stable in our own places so that others don't drag us into being victims or victimizers, um, let alone victims. So it's just really gray. And and I guess I wanted to go back to the, you know, getting safe. When you when you've made the assessment that your partner is either a not willing or b not capable of substantive change that's enough, either they're not willing or they're not capable. That's that's when you know it's time to get out or to leave. But I don't trust necessarily my own judgment in my own relationship um, because I'm too close to it. I would always have somebody else get involved and get an objective opinion, um, which means, you know, a safe counselor that or friend or, or priest or anyone that can say, look, I, I either they're not willing or they're not capable. One of the good news pieces is if they are willing, then they can become capable over time if you can protect yourself and have boundaries and not continue to go in um, and stay close to them and let them continue to abuse. It's kind of like someone who goes in and there's a, their partner's a hand grenade and they're the abuser and the bomb keeps going off and the person gets blown up and they go flying 15 or 20 feet out and they land on their back and the, the birds are spinning around them and, and they they start to think clearly after you know 15 or 30 seconds enough to think, wow, how did I end up here again? How did I get back in this place where I'm abused again? All I want to do is love. All I want to do is be committed. 
because there's so many good parts and my, my children need their dad and he's actually a great dad. He's just a horrible husband or whatever it is that we say. And, and it's true. And so they go back in and they hug the grenade and, and then it blows up again. And one of the ways that a spouse can help stop the abuse is by stopping, allowing them to be abusive to them and hold them accountable. And, and the way you have to do that is by setting firm boundaries and backing out away. And I, you know, there's this there's this space around a hand grenade called the shrapnel field, and we have to find where that limit is and stay on the outside of the shrapnel field so that when they blow, it doesn't affect us. But what I see it most often in the codependence of marriage and the maybe the naive uh, commitment where a spouse yeah. doesn't want to give up on a on a husband or most of the time it's a husband I think. They'll continue to go in and forgive and hug the grenade just to get blown up again, and that really just keeps the cycle going. I've seen I've seen wives with with the ability to stay on the outside of the hand grenade shrapnel field help stop the abusive cycle so that they could create the husband that they wanted. And I've had others who've not been able to help stop it. But what it needs to look like, instead of getting blown up go back in and hug them, getting blown up, go back in and hug them, and get to the point where you you finally just leave, which is the best thing they can do, especially if it's, yeah. if it's, if it's verbally and physically abusive. There's, there's just no reason to stay. You've got to start over. But in a lot of right. cases, they're just hey, maybe I do having have a fights. For you, though. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I know we're talking about abuse, which is perfect. Um, so my question is this. I, I believe that abusers are those that have a desire for power and control, correct? Yes. And then, like you said um, recently, that sometimes victims will abuse. Now, I do think there's a difference right at first, or maybe always, I don't know, where a victim's um, I believe that they use abuse tactics for the purpose of of gaining back their, not control over the other person, but gaining back their own control. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yes. And so I, I know if that's nurtured, it would probably turn into a power over somebody else. But sometimes I don't believe, I think victims, really if they use abuse tactics, they're not abusers because their desire is not to use power and control over that person, but to gain their control back into their life. What are your thoughts on that? I I think it's important to differentiate based on motive, um, and that's one of the ways you can tell if someone's actually willing and capable of becoming a healthy partner in the relationship. It's also very murky. Uh, at some point, yeah. the person crossed the line from just trying to survive and needing control mm-hmm. in their lives, and so they lash out to, I like I like how it feels to lash out. I'm I'm kind of liking this adrenaline rush or the power and, and it just swings too far. So there's such a, yeah. there's such a, what's the word? A pendulum, um, you know, a scale of one to 10. It's, it's never, you're on a zero or a 10. It's, it's way more of a continuum. Well, I, I, I think my whole point was. I work with and, mm-hmm. and there sometimes they'll say, Oh, maybe I'm the abuser. And I'll say, is your desire to have power and control over them? And they're like, no, I want control over my life. Because abusers take all control over your life. They take it completely. And you have no control over anything. 
Yeah, and in in this case, when you're dis, when you're defining an abuser as someone who is a classic abuser, and uh, uh, meaning they've crossed so many lines that anyone on the outside with with a half decent brain would say they are not a healthy, safe person. You need to leave that yeah. relationship. I think yeah. those are way more way more rare than the rest of us imperfect people. And and I do hear the word abuser thrown around a lot, um, just like yeah. addict. You know, oh, he's such an addict. Well, there's a difference between obsessive or out of balance. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're an addict. Right. So I, I agree with right. your – I think there's people who abuse that aren't abusers because they lost control or had a bad moment. Yeah, and, right. Um, and that, if that's not what we're talking about. But I do think women who've been abused are also highly sensitive to any sign of, let's call it machismo or or the masculine control or patriarchy um, and anyone who would control their life, and a lot of times someone's just wanting to be in a relationship and they're not good at it. Um, so I, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to make that assessment on your own. I'm always surprised when someone in an abusive relationship can't see how clearly unhealthy that it is and how codependent they have become to stay in the relationship. Um, yeah. And in those cases. Wow, they need a lot of help and support because they're right in the middle of the tornado, and it's almost safer to stay in the eye of the storm because they're comfortably miserable right. in the middle. Um, right. They know what they know what to expect. They know who they are. They know their role. It's what they've always done. And, it's what they know. It's right. what they're worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those cases well, are pretty and black and white. And, and you they have out. fear when you're in the eye of the storm because you never know when that storm's going to come in. Yeah, and if you have to leave, in some ways it's going to be worse or harder. It's more scary to go to the unknown than to stay with what the comfortable eye of the storm looks like. But to leave the eye of the storm and run through the tornado to get out feels it's worse. possible death. It, it is. I, I've had it likened um, by some some clients that it's like someone came along and stuck a big knife right in their leg, and that was horrible. But then mm-hmm. the thought of pulling it out was so well, paralyzing. That they couldn't act, and you know, and you know this stat um, that seventy-two percent of all deaths that occur in domestic violence are um, when you leave or in the process of leaving, such as the one up in um, Salt Lake last week. Correct, that's right, and that was so sad. Yeah, very sad. It was so sad. Um, you know, I think. I think there's some some gender stuff that we don't rarely talk about that I'm fully confident to say you know i'm i'm happy that i'm a man and i have this testosterone based nature and the reality is the majority of of domestic violence um murder victims are murdered by men um there's mm-hmm. a lot of them that are men it, but they say 96 percent um this is the national average but i've seen utah it's a hundred percent but 96 percent of victims of domestic violence of death homicides are women but in correct Utah right now, I think it's a hundred percent are women right now. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I don't. Not I've not heard of a man that's been killed by a woman in Utah this year. Yeah, I don't know. I do know that men have a very proactive nature, and it, it's not mm-hmm. my fault. I didn't choose it. I didn't ask for it. It's the way I am. It's the way I was created. I happen to believe God created me this way, and I don't think He makes mistakes. I do think. He expects us to overcome um, our natural tendencies. 
Uh, I think there's a part of men with that testosterone nature that would just love to go shoot them up or have sex with anyone and everyone or um, dominate, control, fight, be aggressive. And we have a responsibility to control that. And I don't know, I don't know why we don't do better at that. I think there's a lot of well, good men that do. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um, you know, um, personality disorders are connected um, a, a lot to uh, domestic violence um, abusers. Um, do you agree with that? There's also behavioral. Um, I believe it's not just uh, personality disorders. I also believe it's uh, behavioral disorders as well. So here's here's an interesting back and forth, but, and this is the gender dynamic um, that might be a little politically incorrect, maybe triggering, but it's it's there. Um, <laughs> just about just about every um, homicidal psychopath had a mother with a personality disorder, um, and and how did the mother get their personality disorder? Most of them were abused by their dad. And I don't know which claims first, the chicken or the egg, but we all have a role in being healthy in our roles. And, and I don't care whether you're the nurturer in the home. I've got lots of friends who their wife makes a better income and in living, and they go out and the father stays at home. I don't care which one it is, but I do think we have roles to play in our children's lives, and, and we each have an individual responsibility to be whole. And for men, that means checking that testosterone-based drive. Um, mm-hmm. One of those examples is if there's a couple having severe marital problems and, and dissatisfaction in their marriage, guess which one's more likely to go do something about it by either having an affair or you know, becoming a workaholic. It, it's almost always the man, um, not always, but almost always in a high percentage. And the woman, the wife, tends to withdraw and go into themselves, and they're more likely to be depressed and full of despair from shutting down, whereas the man becomes depressed and despair because they act out. Um, and we're just different in some ways, and that is generalizing. But as far um, as I also have another um, comment, and I want your opinion on this. Um, this is just observation of mine, because I, ha- I work with a lot of domestic violence victims. I found that those <laughs> that either um, cannot become empowered because of the things that hold them back, which is they enjoy being a victim, or those that maybe do become empowered but don't help um, victims of domestic violence, those two categories I find are more likely to re-victimize abuse victims. And what's your experience? Mm-hmm. So give me an example of what you're of what you're talking about. Well, there's the type of um, victims that like to stay as a victim. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm a victim They're of domestic violence. They're comfortably miserable in their they, identity and their label. But they they find, you know, they, they manipulate other, you know, they manipulate others to believe that they're a victim. They don't do anything. Uh, typically, they don't have a job. Um, they typically go on um, welfare or um, a disability of some sort. Um, that's the one category that I was talking about. Um, they... Um, so that they don't have to empower themselves uh, financially or emotionally or in any other way. They don't have to. So they stay in their victimization, 
and they continue to re-victimize people probably in the same way that they were victimized. I had this one, I know this one girl, and um, she, are you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Can you hear me? I hear a beep, so I'm wondering, okay. So nope, anyway, I have this me. one woman that I've um, dealt with, and she's on disability, and um, actually she was on welfare, and she utilized, she actually abused the welfare system by putting several um, different names into the welfare system and got, you know, stamp, food stamps and everything else, and she got a felony for it. But anyway, so I watched her abuse another friend of ours, and um, I told she won't have anything to do with me because I stood up and I said, you will not treat her like that ever. And so she would do it you know, when I wasn't around and stuff. And one thing that she knew was this woman was definitely afraid of cops because, you know, how abusers like to use cops to re-victimize their victims. And right. and so this woman called the cops and said, oh, she's suicidal, which she was not. And so the cops call her whom she's definitely afraid of. And, and you know, so it was just... Um, everything she could think of, she would call um, friends and everything. This one friend walked up to this woman that had been victimized by this other woman and said, hey, I have an anger management book for you because so-and-so says that, you know, you have an anger management problem, so maybe this will help. Okay, the person with the the problem was the abuser (laughs) that was spreading these rumors about this poor woman. Right, to manipulate and control. Right. So that's what I'm talking about is they like to run around victimizing people and then saying they're the victim, which is normal for uh, abusers is they like to say, hey, I'm the victim. Look at what she did to me. And um, so anyway. So uh, my my thoughts on that and the process is that when we're born, we we tend to be pretty innocent, happy, positive. We have everything going for us. And then life happens, the traumas, abuses, deprivations. And then we sink into a scary, bad place where we realize there's pain in the world. And for me, it happened in about fifth grade when I realized that a certain kid actually didn't like me. And I had never experienced that before. He really didn't like me. And I had no idea why I liked him. I liked everybody. And that's when life started to change for me because I was bullied by this fifth grader. Um, But then after a while we get sick of feeling bad and and being victim. And so we swing the other direction on this pendulum and we become controllers and we learn to protect ourselves. And sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's not. Um, Men become aggressive and they try to protect themselves by lashing out maybe with anger. Women do as well. I've seen women um, especially become seductive and sexual to try to manipulate men and gain control that way. Um, And, and that doesn't work. So neither one, either either the shutdown, lost, no backbone, I'm done, I'm on the mat, I'm not going to get up, I can't fight, despair, depressed, quit person, they're stuck. But then if they get up and they fight and they swing all the way to the other side and they become highly aggressive and controlled and they're way in their heads and they're going to hit before getting hit or they're going to control so they're not controlled – you know, they're not in any healthier place except the fact that they're fighting. And I guess I think people have to get up off the mat where they've been broken and beaten and bruised and bleeding 
um, and fight. And oftentimes they swing a little too far past center. They might become a little aggressive. Um, a lot of women who become what I would call quote-unquote man-haters because men have been their abusers, they have swung too far the other way because if you hate all men, that's obviously a problem. Um, yeah. But swinging to the middle would mean um, I know I know who men are and I understand their nature, but I also am wise enough and healthy enough to choose which ones I can let closer and which ones I need to keep away. And I'm aware of what they look like and what they feel like. And, and that takes practice and wisdom and perspective and growth and healing. It just takes a lot of time. You know, how many times have we heard um, a daughter of an alcoholic father that beat them say, how did I end up marrying my dad? How? Yeah. <laughs> it was the one thing I did not want and the worst thing I could think of. And for some reason, I still did it. And it is a pattern. And they didn't know they were marrying that personality, but there was something about it that was familiar, safe, and comfortable. They just didn't see the acting out. So that pendulum swing often comes down to, and I think we get a lot of people believing they're bipolar because when they get up and fight, because they've been knocked on the mat, they feel manic almost. But they can't manage that level of manic push, push, fight, fight, fight. I mean, if you get up and try to fight, for child custody or a job or life or exercise or, or just for your sanity and you can't keep it up because you're alone and you don't have maybe the foundation to sustain fighting, then you fall back and you fall all the way back down where you just quit and you can't do it and you go into a hole for a week, a month, and, and you're binging on Netflix all night and then you sleep all day and, and you're sleeping or you're eating or escaping and um, and then, then you're like, okay, I can't do this. And I get up and I fight the other direction and you become a little too manic that way. And I, I think that's how a lot of bipolar problems occur is the natural state where we want to push forward and fight. There's a part of us that naturally wants to endure and survive. Otherwise, our species would have died out long ago. Um, but the problem is the balance part and finding that middle path or that middle ground, which is a very eastern approach which i love for healing is honest assessment what it is has nothing to do with how we feel about it and the fact is maybe i couldn't be there for my kids and i didn't know how to attach or love Um, and in my case i can share as a as a father i adopted three boys and they were all very difficult kids and Mm -hmm. i protected myself because i was giving too much and i was expecting too much back and they were not able to give anything back and so i had to learn to not meet my needs through those relationships very well but i but i wanted to be a good person in love um happy to say now 15 years later my kids are doing really well and they're actually giving back and they're actually attaching but it took a long time for them to learn to do that but when i had my first daughter biologically i did not know how to attach it literally took three or four months of realizing she's not leaving. She's not going anywhere. She actually responds and laughs and giggles to my touches and my hugs, and she wants to be on my lap. And it was such a different experience that I learned how to attach to her after a while with practice and insight, and I'm a therapist and I know better, and I had to still really work at creating an environment where my heart would open, but I couldn't force it to open. All I could do was create the environment where it did, 
And then my attachment was able to spread from there to my other boys and my wife even better um, because wives aren't necessarily safe to love. They can, they can hurt you, let you down, um, be disappointed in you, whatever. But, a, you know, a child and a baby is really a good place, especially for men, but women who have a hard time loving or being loved to attach. And I do think there's a lot of women who've been victims who want to have children but never really learn how to be safe with a partner. But a child is safe until they're not. And so a lot of single moms and then their child gets up into 12, 13, 14, and suddenly the child has an attitude and a mind of their own and, and they tell you that you're not doing good or they yell back. And and if the parent doesn't have the wherewithal and the backbone to understand that's where that child is at, they, they can fall apart because they never really fixed their own issues. They just right. try to survive and... And a lot of children give love and it meets the parent's need. But parenting can't be about what the child's going to give us. It has to be about what can I give the child. And if they give things back, and they will eventually to some extent, but what, age 12 to 18, they're pretty much hellions. I mean, there might be some good times in there, but they want to rebel. They want to pull away. What's one of the ways they emulate us as parents is by finding their individual path and their individual personality and, and by going against what you want just so that they can make their own decisions. And that's kind of a hard period. But I I really hope that victims of abuse can take a look in the mirror and say, the whole problem, but I am the only solution. And if someone right. injected into me thoughts, weaknesses, fears, defense mechanisms, and if those defense mechanisms used to work for me, but they're no longer valid because I can do better, I've got some work to do. I didn't create the problem, but I'm the only one that can dig myself out of a hole. And it literally is digging yourself out of a hole instead of digging into a hole um, because you're already pushed into the bottom. That takes a lot of work and process and healing, um, but it is worth it. And those people who find themselves and heal from the the life's wounds that have been inflicted on them, either on purpose or just because life was hard, are the ones who find meaning and they create their life worth living. Um, But that takes a lot of looking in the mirror. And I guess that's the hardest part, is looking in the mirror and say, where am I actually lacking? Where have I withheld love? Where have I been unwhole? Um, Because I want to be the most that I can for the people in my life. Yeah, I like what you said. I can do better. I didn't create the problem, but I can try to fix the problem. I like that. Yep. I'm and not the problem, but I am the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's empowering and it's real, but we have to hold ourselves accountable, and that's kind of hard to do. Well, and you know what? I think everybody has the power to do it within themselves if they desire to do it yep it's in us I think we all want to find that good place but it's easy to stay stuck and be comfortably miserable and that's not a healthy place to stay and I see that a lot um, because it is easier and I remember one time I thought well maybe I should just go back to my abuser because it's just easier you know I had my Mm -hmm. kids with him and I thought well it's just easier and my kids and it, were growing really by the time I left, but it was, yeah, it I really thought, isn't you know, easier. I'll just make everybody happy. That's right. 
doing the hard yeah. thing up front always gets easier over time, but when you avoid doing the hard, uncomfortable thing, it gets harder and harder. Like the knife stuck in the leg, if you don't pull yeah. it out because you're afraid, it's going to get worse and worse until it gets bad enough that you're willing to pull it out. And yeah. or you'll lose the leg. Um, and that's that's the yeah. way problems happen, especially with abuse. If you don't face it or deal with it, it will force you to face it and deal with it at some point. But by then, you know, you might be dead or yeah. worse. Uh, you could be alive in a in a horrible, horrible situation. And Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time letting me come on. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. I know you have a lot of things to do, like you expressed, and so I so appreciate um, you absolutely coming on. And um, I will definitely call you, and uh, we'll talk more about um, this and other things, and maybe when you can join me again. I, I so appreciate you coming on. It's just been absolutely very, very informative for me, and I, I'm sure my guests or my um uh, my patrons will agree that it was very, very, very informative. Well, I hope it's helpful. That's really all I value. They just want to be helpful. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I so all appreciate right. it. Thank okay. you, Shereen. Mm, we'll bye talk bye. to you another time. Okay. Mm, bye-bye. Hi, my name is Matthew Pinsker. I'm a historian, and here are some things you need to know to sound smart about the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the one that guaranteed women the right to vote, was ratified in 1920. But the truth is, women had been voting in American elections for long before that. In the early years of the Republic, for example, there were some places where women voted, in the state of New Jersey until 1807. But in most cases... Okay, so I was going to go to a public service announcement. Instead, I pushed the 19th Amendment. So I just wanted to say in closing that um, next week or in two weeks, I was going to have Vidora Eastman. She was going to talk on personalities, not personality disorder, but different types of personalities. But she is very ill and says she will probably not be able to join me in a couple of weeks. So uh, in the meantime, what I plan on doing, though, is talking to uh, what we will replace her with is Lisa Lee. And Lisa Lee will be discussing, we'll discuss personality disorders because she's not an expert on personalities like Vidora. Um, We'll be talking about personality disorder. Thank you for joining us today. And I'm very, very, very grateful for Jason um, to share his insight on trauma and healing. And I want you to have a good night.